Welcome back to the Divorcing Religion Podcast. I'm your host, Janice Selby. I'm a registered professional counselor and a religious recovery consultant. I'm so pleased today to have my friend, Alice Gretchen, joining us. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Alice. She's an actress, author, and the founder of Dare to Doubt, an excellent resource site for people detaching from belief systems they come to find harmful. I send people to that site all the time. It's a great site, Dare to Doubt. Raised in the Midwest and now based in LA, Alice left Christianity in 2007. She recently published her first book called Wayward, a memoir of spiritual warfare and sexual purity. And I know lots of people have really appreciated that book. We met a few years ago to talk about the Divorcing Religion Workshop. And Alice then spoke at the inaugural conference on religious trauma in 2021. I'm thrilled to say that she is also going to be speaking in just a couple weeks at the upcoming Shameless Sexuality Life After Purity Culture online conference. Hi, Alice, it's nice to see you again. Hi, Jan, it's always a pleasure. <laughs> you're, you're so busy. You live in LA and I just imagine all the time you're doing all these fancy, exciting LA Hollywood type things, but I bet there's probably a bit of real life that sneaks in there too for you. It's been a lot of real life lately. <laughs> I've been in the process of moving. It doesn't get more real life than that. So, um, yeah, right now I'm staying at a friend's place, uh, and yeah, just in the midst of in the midst of moving. Um, and you know, my life used to have a lot more glamorous things in it, but it's like pretty much since the pandemic, there's not. I mean, there's always things going on in LA, but I feel so far removed from the entertainment industry anymore, which is like a bittersweet thing. Like part of me is really grateful to sort of have some distance from it and have more of a homebody life, which always mm -hmm. suited me a bit more. And another part of me is like, oh, I kind of miss having a reason to dress up and go yeah. out and, mm -hmm. and see my friends, you know, but it's a... Uh, I'm, I'm in the process of, of leaving LA and I'm really happy about it. Oh. Like my body feels so excited at, and relaxed mm -hmm. at the thought of not having to live here anymore. Oh, um, because most auditions are cast off of tape, just like we're doing now. So it's, really? uh, yeah, it kind of allows me to be pretty much anywhere in the world I want to be. So um, you stay in America. Uh, I think I'm going to do a little bit of traveling both in America and out of America. Um, so yeah, just come to I, Canada. Might come up, I might, I might come <laughs> up to Canada. I think Americans can stay there for what, six months or something without mm -hmm. a visa. I have to look into it, but yeah, I may come up to Canada. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, I'm so glad that you're paying attention to your body because we know how important that is. And if it's feeling relieved at the prospect of getting out of LA with the traffic and everything else that's there, then it sounds like you're doing the right thing. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought people might be um, interested in hearing uh, a little bit about your religious background. Yeah. So my religious background um, was non-denominational Christian, mm -hmm. which I always joke is its own denomination. Because everyone I know. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Everyone else I know who was raised non-denominationally, we all know the same songs. We all were taught the same liturgy, the same non-denominational liturgy mm -hmm. of basically evangelical purity culture. Um, growing up, I did not consider myself evangelical. My family was very staunchly non-denominational and we were staunchly not religious. We were Christian. We would go that far, but we were not religious because to be religious was 
um, to be very like legalistic and, and rule driven rather than led by the Holy Spirit. But the nutshell version of what we really were for anyone who needs to like have a clear understanding of what brand of Christianity I grew up in, we were very much the charismatic Pentecostally based speaking in tongues, getting slain by the spirit, faith healings, mm-hmm. miracles, visions, prophecies, all of that. Um, there was a movement in the in the mid nineties that really picked up and spread across the globe called the Toronto Blessing. Oh, I um, know. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard about it being up in Canada. It was also called the Father's Laughter or the Father's Blessing. Um, More conservative Christians called it the Counterfeit Revival um, because they thought it was like demonic and not of God, which I totally (laughs) can see now because it looked pretty pretty bonkers and demonic. Like, well, you had people, you know, rolling around on the floor and cackling and falling out of their chairs. And so it was it was a sight. And that's what I grew up in. And so it was kind of normal to me. I was homeschooled my whole life. And that added an extra insular layer of um, shelteredness, of isolation. And um, but I didn't necessarily feel under socialized like I had plenty of friends in church and youth groups and neighborhoods I'm the oldest of five kids and so I I always have my siblings um but yeah like that that kind of paints a nutshell I hope of the strain of Christianity uh, did you you have interactions um with other homeschooled families not you know we did but only briefly on a formal basis anyway. I remember there was one year my mom uh, had us participating in like, I guess what might be called like a homeschooling co-op where basically we would like, we'd meet at the church, which wasn't even a church. It was actually an elementary school. Um, We we met on Saturday nights in the basketball gym. That's where we had fellowship. Um, We would not call it like church or church service. It, It was fellowship. Um, and that's how, like, again, not religious we were, so, uh, it was very casual. Um, but there were definitely other families who homeschooled and my family was on the lighter side of things. Uh, there were some families in the church, like I'm, like I said, I'm the oldest of five. There were some families in the church or fellowship that we went to that had 10 kids, 12 kids. Some of the girls weren't allowed to wear jeans the way my sisters and I were. Those okay. girls were in long skirts. And I know your background, you mm-hmm. went through a mm-hmm. period where, you know, it was mm-hmm. women were and girls were in skirts and long dresses. So I didn't have to do that. I had a little bit more freedom than some of the other girls I observed. Um, but yeah, like there were definitely other homeschoolers that I interacted with, but not in a homeschool setting, if that makes sense. Pretty much my mom taught us. And then my dad would step in sometimes, especially for um, math and a few other subjects that my mom just wasn't as uh, confident teaching us right. in. And uh, I remember she went to homeschooling fairs sometimes, would come back with different curriculums. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of A Becca. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which, which, you know, uh, to my mom, in my mom's defense, even she said that she didn't love how dogmatic a lot of the Christian curriculums sure. were, but yeah. at the time in the nineties, and uh, there really weren't a whole lot of other options for mm-hmm. homeschoolers. Most of them were Christian today. There's so many more options, especially in the post COVID, if I dare say that, yeah. um, <laughs> the, the COVID era, uh, where, you know, I've seen all these new terms for it, unschooling, online learning. You know, there was Mm -hmm. no online in 1994, not for homeschoolers anyway. Like the internet was born. It was doing things, but not not at the level that 
um, my mom would have been figuring out to use for us. So I, I'm grateful to see a lot more secular homeschooling resources because yes. I do think that some kids will learn more effectively in a mm-hmm. private home one-on-one environment. I absolutely think it should be an option, but my curriculums are Christian and uh, <laughs> they taught creationism. They taught a lot of racism. They taught um, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, the, uh, they were erroneous on multiple accounts, um, particularly w- with math, which, you know, you think is a little more black and white than something like history, which right. I like kind of paint, paint more ambiguously. But like mm-hmm. even the math book was wrong and I would prove it wrong. Oh, my dad no. proved it wrong and the calculator would prove it wrong. And I would write a Becca horrible loathing <laughs> letters <laughs> i know when i ever wrote that. really <laughs> <laughs> but like so i was just like you know you're it gave me a complex for a long time that i th- i thought like i'm bad at math and then it turned out oh no it was wrong it was bad at math and who knows wow. how many books i went through by the time i got to eighth grade and realized oh i'm actually not bad at math i mean i'm not great but like it gave me it did give me a little bit of a complex you know oh, but i wow. relative to what some other people took away from their homeschooling curriculums, like mandatory beatings. I'd say my homeschool experience, I got off pretty light. Okay. Um, yeah. But we, we were not with it. What's it? ACE or yeah. some of the other more notorious mm-hmm. ones where um, the physical, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Physical mm-hmm. abuse is, is like part of the thing. So that was not my experience, which I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that homeschooling. (laughs) When did you start um, questioning then? How old were you when you started thinking, "Mm, I wonder if this is actually true? Oh gosh. I mean, it's a series of little doubts, right? Like I can think of several times throughout my upbringing where I would have moments of like, this can't be right. Like, or this doesn't add up. Like really, like we're going to stretch logic that far. Or um, it wasn't until I was in my late teens that I began to have serious doubts. But for my, for example, some of my earlier doubts when I was a little kid, um, I remember I was seven years old, the proverbial age of reason uh, <laughs> that Catholics call it. Yeah. And I remember we were visiting a Baptist church that Sunday. It wasn't our normal Saturday night fellowship that we went to. We were visiting a Baptist church and um, the preacher there was telling the story of how his two-year-old daughter had died in a dry cleaning bag. She'd accidentally suffocated to death. How terrible. Heartbreaking. And I'm looking at my younger siblings, like imagining their eyes bulging underneath the clear yeah. plastic and just thinking it could have been them. Wow. And he tied in his sermon in this story. He was crying. He tied it in with the book of Job saying how he believed that God was using, <laughs> what else are you going to do? He yeah. believed that God was using that, uh, tragedy to test his faith yeah. um ultimately to bring him closer um and you know that, who knows why god does the thing the whole mysterious ways we don't get to know um and i was just appalled yeah and furious that god wouldn't even tell her parents why he brought the little girl up to heaven it's like we don't get to know mm-hmm. for some reason i that was that was the earliest point i could remember that we don't get to know why bad things happened mm-hmm. and that felt like the most unspeakable injustice and God was supposed to be love and he could do anything. My dad said, yeah. And <laughs> yeah. so like, you know, God was all powerful and all knowing. And you're going to sit here and tell me that God loves us and watch this little girl die 
in a dry cleaning bag when he could have interfered and chose not to because of reasons we don't get to know Mm -hmm. or to test the parent's faith. He's a pastor. His faith is already clearly pretty, pretty, you know, solid, pretty assumable. And I just thought that was ghastly of God. And I remember talking to my parents about it. I I presented it like, why did God kill her? Because in my mind, God might as well have killed her. Um, and they, you know, were t- telling me like, oh no, God didn't kill her. He allowed her to die. <laughs> like same difference. Like yeah. I didn't, my, my little kid mind just couldn't, mm. couldn't accept that. And eventually, you know, I just gave up and I just resigned like, okay, everyone keeps saying that we don't get to know why bad things happen, but it was always, it was always suffering that drove me back to doubt of like, mm. how could God do this? I remember when I was 15 years old. And I don't write about this story in my book. Um, but when I was 15 years old, I remember a friend confided in me that uh, she'd been molested by her dad mm-hmm. and as a little girl and uh, how she found so much love and comfort in the Christian God because it was a father who actually loved her unconditionally. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking like, again, same thing. This God saw what was going on and loved you unconditionally. And let it happen. Yeah. And I, to this day, like my blood boils when I think of instances like this, because it's still that, that shows me there's nothing good out there that gives a shit about us that, uh, is powerful and could interfere. You know, it's like, there might be a God I'll concede to that. I can't disprove it. There's not, it's not an all powerful, all loving one, not to my Mm -hmm. definitions of life. Um, so yeah, I think moments like that. And then ultimately what really led me to uh, really keep tugging on the sweater that unraveled yeah. <laughs> from my faith completely was when I was 17, I found myself facing an arranged betrothal um, to a man that I didn't love. And, and this was, about, again, part of the Christian, uh, part of the homeschooling, like insular community deal. I wouldn't say it was related to the homeschooling part because I had moved out of the house by this point. Um oh. I got my GED really young because I just, as, as a lot of homeschoolers do, I just graduated early. I was living on my own in LA when this happened. Um, it had way more to do with purity culture, um, which, you know, there is overlap with homeschooling, but it had to do with purity culture because, uh, ever since I was 12, um, and certainly all throughout my teen years, I was given books like um, Josh Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which he since renounced, but mm-hmm. uh, I was given books like that and books like Eric and Leslie Ludi's When God Writes Your Love Story, which I don't think they have renounced. But anyway, they, it's the recipe for Christian courtship, which mm-hmm. for anyone who doesn't know, um, it's no dating, not even Christian dating. It's so much more than not having sex until you're married. It's not dating, not holding hands, not kissing. Um, it's a very, very strict a way to be faithful to your unknown future spouse is the goal. And that promise is that if you are faithful to this unknown future spouse that God has set aside just for you, um, that he's going to reward your fidelity in your future spouse and your faithfulness in him with um, this incredible romantic love story um, that he has written just for you before you wow. were born. You know, it's all very, fairy very tale. Yeah. So fairy tale-ish. And yeah. I, you know, I was such a fairy tale romance girl and I thought like, man, God's really going to give me something special if it's going to exceed my imagination. And when I was 17, again, living on my own in LA, 
a guy from my youth group in Colorado also had happened to move out here and we were friends and he knew that like I didn't date. He knew we were cut from a lot of the same cloth. Yeah. You know, we, we went to the same church and had a lot of the same friends. And um, he one day just told me that uh, God had shown him that I was his future wife. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and, uh, I know. God told him, but God didn't let you in on the planet. No, because God, and God never did. So yeah. to be fair, like I'd never yeah. heard from God. Um, and furthermore, I was told that women are to submit to the male headship of their mm-hmm. fathers first and then their husbands. And so, um, it, it didn't surprise me that God would show my future husband and not me, not just because God had never told me anything. And I'd just given up at that point. I'm thinking I would ever hear God speak to me or God would ever give me a vision. Mm-hmm. I was just so trained by that point to make every decision in my life based off of what God told other people uh, that I was supposed to do, or that I was just collateral in what God was telling them to do. And so it, I was so used to it. And it's easy to, um, to I always feel feel a little bit bad at this part of my story because it's easy for people to really not like Luke, the man I was betrothed to. Right. Um, and to, to assume that he was, you know, just using my faith against me for his own ulterior motives. Um, that's a fair, uh, assumption. I understand why people are like, Oh sure. You've heard from God. You know, it's like, I, I do understand that perspective to this day though. I really think he really believed it. Yeah. Um, I think it was sincere. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he have a crush on me? Sure. But I think he probably thought, because this is how I would have thought, that I think by the time he said that to me, he was probably so convinced that his feelings for me were from God. I was yeah. a very godly young woman. He was a very godly young man. Yeah. We were not, um, you know, in our flesh. Right. <laughs> so it was like, it was a, ooh, I hate using these term, terms. I always like <laughs> feel like I have to shake it off yeah. and say them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like that, that was, uh, I, I definitely had a period of anger toward him. Don't get me wrong, you know, but like having come through that now the other side, and it's been like over 20 years now, um, I can now look back at that time and be like, wow, you know, I really, I, I think he probably was, we were both just messed up little kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we were both so young. We were both so indoctrinated. What else was he supposed to do? You know, so like, your parents, <laughs> he approached your parents and asked for your hand. And so this whole thing was really kind of moving forward. After he, after he told me what God had shown him, he called my dad and asked for my hand in marriage. It was all happening very fast. Um, mm. And my dad gave it. Uh, assuming I later found out that I must have wanted it, that we must have secretly been courting or something. Right. Um, and because my dad did not live in LA, my family was still in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad also said something to the effect of that he'd heard from God too that this was going to happen. So that was another form of external confirmation mm-hmm. that kind of validated that it wasn't just Luke acting on his own desires. Wow. Furthermore, Luke's mother who in my recollection was prophetically gifted. Oh. And so her word carried a lot of weight. I know another, another shudder. <laughs> uh, she'd also seen that I was to be her future daughter-in-law. And so there was all of this external confirmation that just each confirmation was just a nail in the coffin of my heart yes. because it was just like, I'm trapped. God clearly has this plan for me. And if I disobey, then I leave the umbrella of his protection 
And I, I not only mess up God's will and plan for my life, but also Luke's. So I thought like, there's going to be double consequences, whatever these consequences are that God allows when he doesn't do things to you, he doesn't kill you. He doesn't hurt you. He just allows you to do these things to yourself. Um, and then allows the consequences, whatever consequences God is going to allow me, I thought for sure would be catastrophic. Um, I was a very, very goody two shoes, annoyingly onboard Christian girl. Mm. Um, I was so sincere, really, yes. and, and and earnestly devout. Yes. I knew nothing different. People right. today sometimes challenge, you know, the sincerity of my faith. I, I knew nothing else, guys. I could not have been more sincere. It yeah. was my world. It was yeah. my purpose. Mm-hmm. It was my identity. Mm-hmm. And um, the, to go against God was, it was just unimaginable. But... Fortunately, my mom did not hear from God. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, mom's to the rescue, um, or at least mine. And she could tell that I was deeply unhappy and depressed. Um, And she told me that I didn't have to marry him. And I did not believe my mom. For a solid month, she would check in on me and be like, you don't have to go through with this. God wants you to be happy. God's a God of love. Mm. I, I had no idea... And here's where I suppose I can touch on, for me, what I, I call the mind fucks of faith mm-hmm, mm-hmm. are that God is both loving and cares about your desires and wants you to be happy and calls you to do things that displease your flesh, that make you deeply unhappy. Right. And the desires of your heart are also sinfully wicked and not trustworthy, and you should not lean on your own understanding, etc. So. Yeah. And so all of these contradictions about God, I could tell that my mother's God was a lot more of the loving kind. Mm -hmm. My God by that point was way more the fear kind because I'd never known the love of God. I never got touched by God. I never experienced the gift of tongues. I never felt God's love. He never gave me a vision. I always felt ignored by God Uh and furthermore ruled by him in ways that I didn't like as a kid growing up by all the things he was telling other people. So God was not a loving character to me. What was real to me was fear, Mm. fear and shame. So those aspects of God were potent to my being. I knew that God very well. Satan was more real to me than God. Um, a loving God, you know, because I knew what it was to be afraid. I didn't know what it was to feel any sort of divine connection to other something, yeah. you know, I knew human love, but that was different. Like mm-hmm. I didn't, it was like, Oh, it, I suppose we can call it. If God is love, I suppose here's love. But it was like, eh, this could also just be my friend, you mm-hmm. know, it could also just mm-hmm. be mom giving me a hug at night or my dad, you know, taking me out for a bean burrito at Taco Bell right. and telling me he loves me, you know, yeah. like it was, I don't know. So my mom, uh, I, I just really wrestled. I thought Satan was using my mom to deter me off of the path of God's very clear plan that these other people had all affirmed. Um, wow. So I thought like my mom, she didn't know it, but she was being used by the devil to please my flesh and try to lure me away huh. because my mom had stopped going to church by that point. Um, oh. And so I thought she's full on, she's off the wagon. She's a heathen. I can't trust anything she has to say. I don't know oh what my, my mom's gosh. version of God is turning into, but it's not, I don't know. It's just not the one that I believe in and that everyone else around me believes in. (laughs) So it's a, it was a very, very disorienting, but ultimately I did find the courage to leave. And then the hell really started. I don't even remember breaking up with this guy because I was so scared that my mind completely blacked it out. I can remember going there to meet him. 
And I can remember, um, I can remember glimpses of his, his eyes. I can remember a few words that I said, but I, and I remember being surprised by my words because at one point, and this is the, this is where my memory starts to come back. Mm. I was telling him like, don't call me, don't email me, don't message me. Like don't contact me in any way Wow. because I was so, I was never afraid of him that he would hurt me. I want to be very clear about that. He's not that man, but I was terrified of what he symbolized to me, which was my own disobedience. Mm. Um, And therefore Satan, (laughs) because when we disobey God, Satan now gets to have a foothold. So I was terrified and I didn't, I was terrified that he'd be able to talk me back into it. Yeah. I was terrified that I wouldn't be able to be strong enough in myself. Mm. Um, so I, yeah, I was cutting off contact with him. I have no idea what he said. I can't remember that. I can't, I remember driving away. Um, and you were 17 years old, 17 years old. Holy crap. That is so much pressure for a kid to be under. That's just, (laughs) wow. It was a lot. It was a lot. And, um, I lived in so much fear of God from that point on mm-hmm. because I was just waiting for the consequences. Yeah. Um, because even though part of me was really trying to lean into my mom's version of God and I would do all the self-talk and prayer of like, God, I know you, you, you love me. You want me to be happy. I just at, believe in faith. I have faith to have Ooh. faith that you want me to be happy and that you care. Yeah. It was that. And, um, for, for a very long time, anxiety attacks, panic attacks, nightmares, finding myself driving on sunset Boulevard, having no idea where I'm going. Why did I even leave my house? I don't even know where I'm going. Hyperventilating and crying wow. and having to pull over. Wow. Um, I was fractured, Poor completely dear. fractured. And, um, it's what I would now know were symptoms of religious trauma syndrome. That was just the beginning though, guys, I was still a Christian. There was still farther to fall. Mm. I was what I would now call a progressive Christian at that point from Mm. age 17 to 21. Mm -hmm. Um, I really did reinvent the God, the Christian God, still a Christian God, but I reinvented the God I believed in to be one who was LGBTQ affirming sex positive, um, Maybe there wasn't a hell. There was because the Bible said, but maybe no one was actually there because maybe God supernaturally revealed himself to people when they died. So their souls would have a less chance to see God is real and I'd better go here because how could this loving God send my friends to hell? I have gay friends. I have Jewish friends. I have Scientologist friends. This just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it it just was such an unraveling. And, and then, yeah, I eventually lost my faith altogether. And then religious trauma really kicked in. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, yeah, where do we want to go? I'll, I'll let you, I'll, I'll take a pause there. It's such an incredible <laughs> story, really, to wrap our heads around. That's amazing. I'm so thankful that your mom was able to talk to you and uh, and convince you that you didn't have to marry that person. Your life would have been so different, looked so different. I would have married God. Yeah. And, and yeah. And then, um, how did your dad take it when you uh, said the marriage was not going to happen? I don't remember telling my dad. I remember, um, so I don't know how he took it. Uh, I remember I didn't want to talk to, I was scared for the same reason I was scared to talk to Luke 
I was scared to talk to my dad, not because I was afraid of either of them, but because they both symbolized my disobedience to God. Yeah. Because they were both the men that God had placed in my life that I had disobeyed. Right. Their word carried a lot of weight in mm-hmm. my psyche, in my heart, because they symbolized the voice of God. That yeah. I so, so whatever they said, I you know, I I didn't trust myself to have a relationship with my dad. Um for about a year and a half, I felt very distant from him wow. of my own accord. There was no formal, I'm not talking to you, Dad. Right. There was nothing like that. I just noticed when I would talk to my mom, she's like, oh, Daddy's here, you want to say? I'd be like, I have to go. Right. You know? I just avoided him. And um, it wasn't until gradually, I think, as time went by, you know, I still went home for Christmas. So I would see him. And here's the thing. I'm, I am now and always was as a kid, very close to my dad. Uh-huh. It's always such a daddy's girl. Wow. Um, very close to my dad. And my dad is a jolly, sweet, sensitive, oh. open, very kind man, then mm-hmm. and now. He had an authoritarian streak for sure. He used to be a police officer. He has oh. that side of him too. Wow. And he was a pastor. So he has that side of him too. Oh, wow. But <laughs> yeah, I know there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but the man I know is my dad. Like, he was not this patriarchal, you're going to do what I tell you because I'm the voice of God. That wasn't my dad. Right. That was all the programming I got from church and youth yeah. group yeah. and books and the mm-hmm. Bible. Mm-hmm. The straight from the source, straight mm-hmm. from the horse's mouth. And so it was like, I I had also take responsibility for indoctrinating myself mm-hmm. for my own devoutness. And one might argue like, oh, you know, you didn't have a choice. You were brought up in this. Plenty of other kids were brought up in this too, like my siblings who did not take it as seriously as I did. They did not commit themselves to the Bible the way I did or come away with the translations that I did. So there was a part of me and my genetic makeup that just believed. That was just, I took things to heart. I took things mm-hmm. very very literally always being firstborn can also play a role there and just such a strong desire to please and not want our parents to be disappointed in us and to do feeling the pressure of being a role model yes yes, (laughs) all of that so i you know my dad he i remember he and i many years ago now but a few years after my patrol i remember we were on a motorcycle ride together um, because we like to do that together and motorcycle rides are great for talks. If you have a microphone connect, that's from right. Helmet. That's right. Yeah. And, um, I've had some of my best conversations with my dad on a bike. And oh, nice. I remember we were talking about that whole patrol incident wow. and, um, I really came, it was the first time I could really talk with him about it. And maybe it was because we weren't, there was no eye contact. I was right. hanging on to him right. back and, mm-hmm. And he was so soft and so sorry and couldn't believe that it wasn't something that I wanted. Um, he just was so appalled that like I, he, that I, that I'd been in that situation and that right. he had any role to play in it. Mm-hmm. Um, because and he, he understood it made sense to him because he knew the books that I read, the books he'd given me. He right. knew the, he knew what I'd been taught. Um, yeah. And so he couldn't fault me for how it looked. He just, Mm -hmm. it never crossed his mind that God would call me to marry someone I didn't have romantic feelings for. Right. Because that wasn't in the books. In the books, it was always, oh, yeah, God's going to bless your sex life once you're married. And it's going to be so hot. And you're going to feel so much passion for your spouse. I didn't feel any of that. And I think my my poor dad didn't, he, he just never thought to ask me if this marriage was something I wanted. Because why would this guy be calling him asking for 
for my hand yeah. if, if it wasn't something mm-hmm. I wanted. He didn't know how it had all unfolded prior. Um, right. mm-hmm. And so I can have a lot of grace for my dad too, yeah. um, to be like, you know, it, it was, we've definitely had talks and I'm, I'm sure, you know, it's, it's a tricky part of my story because I think a lot of people read it to be fair. Maybe I could have writ- written it in my book a little bit more clear. Um, I think a lot of people read it as like, it was this arranged marriage that my parents conspired with Luke's right. mom and Luke. Right. To, it's like, no, it wasn't that type of arranged yeah. betrothal. It was arranged by God. Right. I tried to make that clear, but it was like, God was telling these people. Right. Um, and so it's not like a parent to parent arranged, like, Oh, like a game of Thrones situation. Yeah. It was more like a, you know, it was, it was a faith based thing, the way God, put something on anyone's heart. You know, God told me to switch jobs. God led us to move to this state. God's yes. leading us to this new church. Mm-hmm. God's leading yeah. me to marry you. It, it absolutely highlights the vulnerability um, of everyone when they um, give up logic and reason in exchange for magical thinking mm-hmm. and the vulnerability, especially of uh, girls and women and adolescent mm-hmm. girls um, raised in those fundamentalist situations where the authority is that horrible umbrella structure, God, you know, father mm-hmm. and then mother and then, um, and then the, child and of course the husband comes in there right after uh father you know depending on how things are but it's just and we don't have a voice in that and if someone says to us if a and I had a man tell me also a man from Africa told me well God told me that you're to be my wife and come with me back to (laughs) back to Ghana yeah (laughs) that was I'm like, mm, he didn't tell me that. I did not get the memo. Uh, but I could, it was so uncomfortable because he really believed it. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, so anyway, for you then, you still had a couple more years um, where you were a devout Christian, just your faith was evolving or devolving or something. You were becoming more progressive, less legalistic. Uh, and then at some point, you just were able to let it all go and say, actually, I don't believe any of this. Yeah, I gave God a test mm-hmm. and he failed. <laughs> and that was the moment just like that I became an atheist. Um, just like that. And it was like I needed to know by that point. I'd I'd tried to watch the documentary Jesus Camp. Oh yeah. Um <laughs> and it felt like watching my childhood. Yes. I was watching these kids. I'm I'm convinced, you know, some of them were faking praying in tongues, the way I used to fake praying in tongues. Um, the way I used to fall over on the floor and act like I was a prophet and God was telling me things and giving me visions. I, I bullshitted my way through Christianity my entire life to the point where I believed my own bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, I, I was so triggered watching Jesus Camp that I couldn't finish it. And it brought back memories that I tried to block out. It brought back a lot of pain of feeling God's rejection never feeling God's love that I tried to avoid. And I was still trying to obey this motherfucker who wouldn't make himself real to me. So it activated all this anger. And I was like, I need to know God. I know I'm not supposed to test you. I hope you can see my heart that I'm not being arrogant. I'm, I'm, I just need to know I'm coming to you from the most humble, broken place of desperation. If you're real, don't ever let me doubt your presence. Don't 
ever let me doubt your veracity. Like, you know, I will be the most committed. Yeah. I would die for you. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. you know, I was so, so martyr ready, committed. Yeah. And, and I, all I asked for was just prove yourself to me. And I, and I was very specific. Uh, I didn't want there to be like a butterfly that comes by, you know, right. or like, it's something like that, you know, could it be explained by other means? Because my brain, even though I brainwashed myself, is still sharp underneath all of that <laughs> religious muck. And I didn't, I knew I, I knew it would try to argue with the evidence of God unless I made it crystal fucking clear what he needed to do to prove himself. And I was at my kitchen washing dishes finally, and I, I, I didn't plan this stuff, you know, like it probably would have been a lot more ceremonial than it was found myself washing dishes at my kitchen sink and I just could not wonder a moment more. My eyes glanced to my spice cabinet on my wall and I was like, God, you've got to knock over that jar of cinnamon. Mm-hmm. It's not asking for too much. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure I'm you could do it, big guy. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's like, but it, it wasn't too much, but it God. was enough that like that jar is not knocking over itself. The wind's not that strong that it's going to blow over. I knew I would not be able to convince myself that it was anything other than God if that jar had fallen onto my countertop. Of course it didn't. Wow. I told God he could knock over the nutmeg. He could knock over the vanilla extract. He could knock over the cardamom, any spice, the chili. Like I was desperate. I was praying. I was crying. And yeah, Mm -hmm. nothing, nothing fell. And that was just like altogether, maybe 30 minutes or so. Um, And then I just knew, (laughs) I just had the thought like, God's not real. Like, and I I felt nothing about it. I felt at that point, I what I know now is I went to a state of dissociation. Yeah. Um, of just utter detachment, of just like the world didn't even seem real. Nothing seemed I didn't seem nothing. It's so hard to articulate in words, but um it didn't hit me emotionally. Until days later when I caught myself praying on autopilot, because I was actually, again, I was a really good Christian. I prayed all the time. I was praying on autopilot. And then all of a sudden I was like, I'm talking to an imaginary friend. And then I was devastated, Mm -hmm. crushed. All of the grief hit me at once because even though God never showed me his love or talked back to me, I really did believe he was like this heavenly father who loved yeah. me and always had my back, was looking out for me, was bringing good auditions my way, yeah. <laughs> making sure that I wasn't going to go broke as a struggling actress, yeah. making sure that God justified why bad things happened. Even though he didn't, it was the, 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 the hammock, the safety net of knowing that God was always in control by that point in my life had come to soothe me. Mm-hmm. Even though I bitterly accepted I wouldn't get to understand it until I went to heaven. Right. Uh, God was going to have some explaining to do once I got right. to heaven. Um, but I could wait until then. And so it all just hit me at once. The suffering in the world, the suffering of my own life, the years mm-hmm. that I'd wasted, mm-hmm. the crushes I hadn't expressed, the music I hadn't listened to, the bikinis I hadn't worn, <laughs> the, the CDs I broke, mm-hmm. the, That's the right. friends that I broke up with. Um, because they weren't faithful enough. They weren't right. a good enough influence. You know, it all just hit me. What a waste my entire yes. life felt like. Mm-hmm. And the anger hit me. The depression hit me. And then, you know, after a week or so of that, the freedom hit me. Oh, that's the fun part. <laughs> that's the fun part. <laughs> of like, I can read. I remember it was books. I was like, I can read any book I want. 
I can go to Barnes Noble right now, go to the occult section. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've been and, there. Uh, yep. And like, and I can learn about anything I want. I can go to the psychology section. I can go to the science section. I can go, I can learn about anything I want. I'm, I'm a voracious learner, always have been. And I stifled my learning and limited it to Christian approved things. Right. And I didn't have to anymore. I could learn about whatever I wanted (laughs) and I could wear whatever I wanted. So I went to Melrose Avenue and I got like the skimpiest halter top and I got (laughs) assless leather chaps that I wore to Halloween. (laughs) (laughs) Like black lace panties. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, I, I, I listened to music and I, I swore every single swear word, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I just really let myself have celebrate my rebellion. And to this day, I think rebellion is sacred and I think it mm-hmm. is medicine. I mm-hmm. think it's a necessary growth Love it. phase yeah. that um, most ex-fundamentalist people need to go through. Um, that most people, let's not even use the term fundamentalist because I wouldn't have called myself fundamentalist, that most people who were sincere, devout believers, when they lose their faith and they have, they have living to catch up on that they deprive themselves of, I think it's important to let oneself catch up on that to the best that you're, that you're able in good conscience and to the best that you want to. A lot of people don't want to do things that I did. They're not going to want to pose topless on a magazine, for instance, you know, but I wanted to. And so I did. And I, I let myself rebel and it was beautiful and I would do it all over again and further in a heartbeat. And and Um, did your parents know what was going on? Did anyone know? Did you have friends that you could talk to? So they, they could see what I was doing. They didn't know the internalness of that. I'd lost my faith. I wasn't ready to talk about it. Um, I wasn't ready to tell my family for a long time afterward um i think they thought that i was falling off the wagon or having a prodigal son moment yeah (laughs) maybe i don't want to put words in their mouth i don't know exactly what they thought but i know that um i was i couldn't talk to any of my friends in la about it because they weren't from my world right i didn't think they'd understand and i didn't want to explain to them my world because it's bonkers and i was ashamed (laughs) of it I'm still confused about it. Whenever I, whenever my background did come up, people always had so many questions like, but why would God tell your family to move around? But how did God speak? And I never knew how to answer these questions. I didn't know either. And it was just a headache to have to try to explain. I didn't have the energy for it. I just wanted to live and just be a person. And um, so it was a very internal thing. And then about two months after my deconversion, um, I started having really, really bad panic attacks and I didn't know why. And it all makes sense now. It's also obvious now. It's like, well, of course, you know, <laughs> like I, the, my cells believed that we were hellbound now right. um, because I had rejected God fully. I wasn't even trying to believe in a liberal idea of God or a right. love or a, a universe, the, the allness, the divine. I was completely a-spiritual, not for lack of trying. I did expose myself for, I'm getting ahead of myself, but for several years, um, I desperately wanted to believe in something else, Buddhism, yeah, Taoism, New Age spirituality. Yes, I remember we've talked. I think we've taken a sim- similar parallels yeah. with Janice into like, you know, I, I, I really wanted to believe in something. 
Um, I just could never convince myself again. And I knew when I was lying to myself because I'd done so fucking much of it. I knew, I know what it feels like to try to tell my brain something is true that isn't. I know what it feels like to gaslight myself. Mm -hmm. I know what Mm -hmm. it feels like to fool myself. I paid too high a price to unfool myself, but I'm not willing to knowingly do that again. Yeah, right. And so even though I would expose myself to things, you know, whether it was other formally recognized religions or whether it was tarot cards, crystals, astrology, a lot of my friends to this day are really into astrology. I try. I play along, you know. I really am trying to be less of an asshole about it. Um, (laughs) Not poke holes, but I, you know... I, am I convinced of it? No, absolutely not. Um, but it's very, it doesn't matter. It's important to them. So I try, you know, but it's, it's, I definitely had to go through a, a grief and confusion and anger phase of that too, of just accepting that most people are spiritual. Um, doesn't matter how much I want or even need to get away from spirituality mm-hmm. for my own healing and growth. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, I just avoided people. I didn't make mm-hmm. friends. I just was like, I can't trust people. Um, because they're spiritual. And really what I meant was I can't trust myself to be around spiritual people without being triggered and without putting down healthy boundaries. Like, mm. no, I'm not, I don't want to do tarot cards um, and not worrying about hurting their feelings. You know, right. they're saying something like, uh, no, I don't believe in astral projection. That was a boundary that I would, I was too chicken to say because I didn't want to hurt people or offend yeah. them. And I also didn't want to, uh, when I would talk about it a little bit, it was choking me and sort of come out a lot more intensely than I meant for it to. And it would land a lot more harshly than I intended for it to. Um, and it's all very understandable to me then and now, but I'm grateful to be at a place where a lot of those triggers have lessened. And now I can totally, I have Christian friends again, you know, and like, as long as they're cool with me and don't try to like evangelize to me, I don't try to anti evangelize them. You can coexist beautifully and have millions of other wonderful, deep, beautiful things to talk about, like actual life, which everyone lives. So it's, um, it's interesting that, that, that arc alone of being able to be around spiritual people again was, took me a very long time, took me years, um, took me a lot of therapy and yeah, the religious trauma, panic attack bits, that's what put me in therapy for three years and helped me process, helped me know myself. He, neither of us had heard of the term religious trauma syndrome at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, there were not hashtags that were ex-angelical. There, were, right. there was no deconstruction space. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was, there, none of the resources that exist today, to my knowledge, existed in the um, mid-2000s, mm-hmm. early 20-teens. Um, maybe towards the mid 20 teens, I have to, I have to go back and look. Um, but we're hashtags, yeah, hashtags sort of thing by the mid 20 teens, but, but yeah, point is I felt very on my own. Um, and in ways looking back now, I'm kind of grateful because the deconstruction ex evangelical ex believer space in general could have its own groups were not good for me. Put it that way. I needed to be on my own. I think I would have been very easily influenced Mm -hmm. and um, vulnerable to a lot of unhealthy things that I think all groups share. And Mm -hmm. I hate to be such a cynic of groups because it sounds like maybe I'm a cynic of community. Um, I'm not to my definitions of these terms. (laughs) I have my community and it's very (laughs) one-on-one. Yes. It's not groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, I appreciate groups and I've learned to, I'm still learning. And here's where I'm still at in my healing today. Um, 
I'm still trying to learn how to trust groups again. And I keep being told and reminded, this is why you don't. (laughs) So maybe I'll just be here forever. I don't know. But uh, it doesn't matter. That's where I am now. And I've also learned to just have a lot of patience for myself and to accept. Yeah, right now I'm still very leery and judgmental of this because I need to be because I'm not there yet. And that's okay. And that's okay if I'm never there because I'm there. It doesn't exist. That can Mm -hmm. be true too. Mm -hmm. So I've just learned how to like, just really accept myself and that allowed me to love myself. Yes. Um, Yeah. And that, that was everything. Uh, I have a lot of love for all the bitter, dark, angry, funny, irreverent, (laughs) loving, kind, (laughs) compassionate parts of me Mm -hmm. Um, that took me a very long time to get to. I still am trying to love the part of me that doesn't like feeling misunderstood, which I feel often. She still is very hurt by that and Mm -hmm. it's like okay I love you too and to love you means to accept you means to not force you to have to explain yourself the way that I feel compelled to sometimes super hard in social media circles and particularly for people of some renown like yourself because anything that you put out there you're going to have a group of people right away who support and love anything that comes out of your mouth no matter what and then you're going to have people who are actively looking for when you said this what did you really mean you know trying to poke holes in it and of course it's hard when we're just um, writing something to people, they can't always yeah. understand our tone and they're reading it through their own goggles of uh, misperception, you know? And so you, yeah. you're never going to be able to please uh, everyone. And what you're doing is just telling the truth. You're telling the truth about your life and what happened to you and how you've grown as a result. I think it's just a beautiful thing. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. And when did you uh, develop the Dare to Doubt website? So Dare to Doubt um, came in early 2019. So I was actually at a Golden Globes party. Oh, the Chateau wow. Marmont in the Hollywood Hills. Oh, my. <laughs> and, uh, Ooh, la, la. <laughs> um, no, I was, I was someone's plus one. I wasn't there for me. I was <laughs> the plus one, a very lucky, happy plus one. And I ran into an old friend of mine that I worked with on a show way back in the day. And we were just talking and we, it turned out that he was an ex-evangelical type Christian too. And I was like, no way. So of course we, you know, got into it. And, yeah. um, and as we were talking about like some of the scars of purity culture mm-hmm. and rebuilding our lives and mm-hmm. rebuilding our sense of meaning and purpose and identity outside of faith, mm-hmm. I had the thought that like, I wish someone could hear us. I wish that all of our fans that we had from the various shows that we've been on could hear our conversation because I knew that so many people would find it comforting to know that they weren't alone and to know that um, celebrities were speaking up about it mm-hmm. and that it mattered um, and that what they went through was legitimate and in valid need of care and yeah. understanding and medical attention for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, Religious trauma is real. And uh, I think that at the same time, I was almost done writing my book. And I was, I one of the lines in my book at the very end, when I'm in an epilogue and I'm addressing the reader, I was, I, it just came out as I was like typing. It was like, I, I hope you dare to doubt. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of catchy. Dare to doubt. Like, that should be something. And I didn't really think much of it then. 
And I, as I was talking with my friend, it came back and I was like, dare to doubt, like that could be, I don't know what that is yet. I was like, surely it's taken. The domain wasn't taken. The hash, the, the handle weren't wow. taken on social wow. media. I'm like, okay, I'm going to snatch those up. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. Um, I thought, I thought maybe I would start, I don't know if it was an organization that would help fund therapy for other people going through religious trauma, or yeah. if it might be a, a podcast or something. I wasn't sure what I would do with it. It ended up becoming a resource site. Um, and I may build a podcast of my own or something on it on top of it. But I, what was more important to me initially was to help make it easier and quicker for people like my 21-year-old shattered self to find help for religious trauma, mm -hmm. for religious abuse, for just basic need safety. Like I got kicked out of the house because I came out to my parents as gay and I have nowhere to sleep tonight. I need to know where the nearest shelter is. Right, right. Um, you know, or I'm refusing an arranged marriage and now my family is, you know, or I, I they found out I kissed a girl or another boy that I'm not engaged yeah. to. And now I'm facing honor, the threat of honor-based violence. Oh. So these are things, I, it was. it's not just for Christians, I should say. Dare right. Doubt is, I built it, um, I built it trying to be inclusive of people with a lot of different spiritual yeah. backgrounds, mm -hmm. including Islam, including ultra-Orthodox Judaism, mm -hmm. Amish, um, Buddhist. Mm -hmm. uh, I know people who are ex-Buddhist and they're fucked up too. Buddhism's mm -hmm. not benign. <laughs> right. Um, it can right. be. Any of these faiths can be for some people. Yeah. Um, the, the, the cherry pickers, and I say that affectionately and with admiration <laughs> because I think that they're the they're the... The, the most sane and probably the most loving right if they are cherry picking only right. good parts yes but for those of us who didn't have that luxury because mm -hmm. of our our consciences mm -hmm. because of the way that we were told you know you have to take the whole text that's as right the truth mm -hmm. um for those of us who are more literal thinking mm -hmm. um and um yeah it, it it can be extremely scarring and i wanted to just i remember when i was trying to find a therapist just a regular therapist never mind someone who knew about religious trauma who was openly secular it took me like four or five therapists before i found the one i wanted and it was so overwhelming trying to like find one i remember i was screaming i didn't i knew i didn't want one who had gone to a christian university a right. lot of psychologists go to christian universities oh, because yes. ministry and counseling are very similar yes. they attract a similar yeah. heart-led person mm -hmm. a very good person for the most part and um it was just, I, I didn't trust anyone who went to Pepperdine, which there's a lot of that here in LA. Pepperdine's mm -hmm. in Malibu. It's a Christian university. Oh. I didn't trust anyone who went to, a, a, yeah, I, I dug deep yeah. um, to try to find clues of faith. It's like, can I trust you? Can I be safe in you? Can I, can I tell you what I'm going through without thinking you're going to pray for me? And without now we have a secular <laughs> therapy project. We do. And that was one of the very first organizations that I put on Dare to Doubt um, because it didn't exist, I don't think, when That's I needed right. it. And I'm so happy it exists now for yes. other people and I yes. point them to it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I also built Dare to Doubt to still be faith-friendly. Um, it's not just secular. I don't only have secular resources on there because I think of the girl I was between 17 and 21 mm -hmm. who could have still used a website like Dare to Doubt but would have been so scared of hell to go to an openly atheist secular site. Right. I don't shy away from the fact that I've arrived at atheism and that there are open there there are atheist resources on the website, but there's also faith-based ones. There's also ones that are more progressive and still religious because to my way of thinking, 
I needed to go through that progressive stage to get to where I am now. And I also know and accept that not everyone's going to get to a place of atheism. Mm. Unfortunately, in my opinion, we are hardwired toward belief and toward faith and superstition. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of genetic and evolutionary evidence for that. So I'm trying to meet the people where they're at, to use a Christian (laughs) term, and um, just accept that some people are just going to need spiritual resources. And so what are the best ones that in my opinion, I can try to help provide. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, dare to doubt.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can take a quiz. There's a yes. lot of quiz. It'll show up on the homepage where you can answer if you want faith friendly resources or strictly secular ones. Right. You're on there. Jan. Uh, I love the way. Yes. <laughs> thank you. I love the way you have it um, set up and it's just shocking to me that you developed it yourself. You made the website yourself i mean you are when i think of when i look up overachiever i see a picture (laughs) whatever you set your mind to uh, you can do it (laughs) that's right that's right we recognize that in each other yes your your website is uh marvelous and then um you weren't done at that point you decided also that you wanted to publish your memoir that you had worked so hard on and how has the family received uh, your memoir? So overall, it's, I am one of the luckiest people in the world to have written a memoir of the nature that I wrote and to still be super close to my family. Um, It's not to say that it didn't have some tough moments. Right. Uh, There were, and, but, but we, talked through them. And I'm always happy to share that no one in my family is still in the church. And this happened way before my book, not because of me, but no, no one in my family is still, uh, is still involved in any of that. Like all, all four of my siblings turned out to be agnostic or atheist. And, um, I think, and I think maybe because of that to a certain extent, I'm sure it contributed. I'm sure we all played roles in each other's deconversions and my parents as well, but my parents always intended to put their children first and to never lose relationship with us, no matter what. And I think uh, they they have stuck to that. And I am so intensely grateful for that. And like I said, it's not been without, like I was talking about my dad earlier, it's not been without, you know, tough moments or hard conversations sometimes. But um, usually people who write a book like mine like Tara Westover's Educator yeah. or Megan yeah. Phelps Roper's Unfollow. Mm-hmm. Um, usually if they write a book like mine, they're already estranged from their family. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, usually not because of their own doing. Their family doesn't has cut them off and doesn't mm-hmm. have a relationship with them. I meet more people than not who, do, who are not still close with their family. And uh, I'm very lucky that I, you know, and they all signed off on it on my book. Oh. Um, they there were a couple revisions. Like, hey, I don't remember it that way. You know, here's how I remember it. And I was like, please, like, tell me, because wow. um, I really wanted to be as inclusive of multiple perspectives as I as it's I very could. As they kind would, of you. they would let me be. Oh, I I love them very much, and I, it's very important to me to not to not lose them. Yeah, <laughs> I knew I might. And I also knew, I remember when I, when I told my parents that the time had come for them to read my draft, I was bawling my eyes out because I was, I knew that like, maybe they wouldn't like it. Maybe they wouldn't. I, I, and I I remember telling them too, that I was like, I know you're not going to like some parts of it, but I just, 
hope you understand I'm not doing this to hurt you guys or to get vengeance on you or anything like that. I'm doing this because I don't know how to be true to myself if I don't. Mm. And they could really respect that. And they could really see my motive in writing and publishing. It wasn't to have some scandalous tell-all to get back at my parents for a way of raising me. It was to help other people who were also going through it. Yes. Who have been raised maybe not even similarly, but could understand the arc of believing and devoting yourself to something so wholeheartedly and then having it completely shattered and having Mm -hmm. to rebuild your life. And so Mm -hmm. it's, it's touched. And I've, I've, been so fortunate to hear from people who it's touched who weren't raised religiously at all who can still identify with some part of my story and um so ultimately yeah everyone in my family supported me and still supports me and my parents have even each taken a turn coming with me to an atheist conference whoa yeah and like (laughs) They've, they've wanted to, I was shocked. Like they've wanted to be in, involved in this part of my life and I'm so happy to have them there. And I'm so wow. happy. And it, it, it warms my heart when I see them talking with other kids, my age and younger who wish that their parents would come, you know, and I think it gives them yeah. hope in a weird way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe it's just not hope, but sort of vicarious, like, Oh, they're not all, not everyone cut their kid mm-hmm. off. Like, you know, they're, mm-hmm. so it's, it's a, it's, yeah, I again, I don't, I don't know. I haven't heard of any other memoirist in my oh, position who has yeah. this much true, wholehearted support and, from her and family. Did you feel also like it was? It kind of continued your healing process. Oh, absolutely! It definitely. Um, I mean, writing the book itself. I was just telling someone today it was the biggest act of therapy I could have done for myself. Mm-hmm. I'm a writer. I'm not a musician. I'm not a runner. I'm not a painter. I process my. I process my life through words and through writing. And um, so, yes, it took me 10 years off and on to write that book. Okay, that makes me feel better. (laughs) It's not done yet. (laughs) No, Janice, I kid you not. I think I was 22 or 23 when I started. I didn't finish it until I was 33. And, um, there were, there were months would go by where I wouldn't touch it at all. Then I'd write maybe two pages. Here's the thing though. By the time it was ready to submit to an editor, it was three times as long as it was now. I had basically written a trilogy Uh and I cut out two thirds of what I'd written. Um, and I'm glad I did because a lot of it was just for me. A lot of it was just my, I didn't know what, I didn't know where my ending was. I'm still alive. What's the ending of writing a memoir? You know, like, is it when I lose my faith? Is it when I rebuilt? But I didn't know. And while I was writing the book, I was still trying to find my ending. I, I, at some point I remember recognizing like, I was frustrated because I wanted to be one of those young authors under 30 um, right. who published a book under 30. I was like, that's not going to happen. And I need to not force that because my life is, it's, I don't, it's, if I do, it's going to end on a pretty grim note. Mm-hmm. It's going to end on a very <laughs> suicidally grim, bitter, angry note. And I was like, if that's the truth. Okay. So be it. And that's where it was. The ending just sat there for a while. Um, I hadn't learned about religious trauma yet. All I knew was that life had zero meaning. I didn't want to live, but I wasn't brave enough to kill myself. So I was just going to exist, I guess. And I was like, that's not a very happy ending, but I guess it's the truth. But so it's good enough, but I'm glad that I didn't try to force publishing it early because I discovered that I, that I can make life meaningful. I don't believe there's meaning I don't believe that there's a point of life. I'm right. extremely nihilistic mm-hmm. and it's the best mm-hmm. thing for me. Mm-hmm. I understand why it puts people in a dark place, but for me, it actually brought me to the brightest place of existence yes. that I can imagine being. Yes. And 
that being there helped me uh, eventually. I learned about religious trauma syndrome. I read Dr. Winnell's book, Leaving the Fold. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I'll always be so grateful to her for for writing that and naming what so many of us go through as religious trauma syndrome. Mm -hmm. And um, that put like a second blast of wind in my sails and I was able to finish my book. Um, I was able, it allowed, because it sent me on this course of learning the neuroscience behind mystical experiences, yes, like yes. speaking in tongues. And, and I was like, mm-hmm. that's the ending I needed. I needed oh. to understand what the fuck was going on. Yeah, I could not move on. I, there was no way I could have moved on without understanding scientifically what was going on in the brain and why I had never felt it, why, why I had never mm-hmm. felt God and why other people had these weird, bizarre symptoms evidencing that they did. Yeah. Um, it's not God. It's just a bunch of neurochemical stuff that it, oh. I can get into another time. But yeah, it's um. You you spoke on that at the conference on religious trauma when, and that was such a tremendous session. And and people actually can access it now by going to oh, the good. conference on religious trauma YouTube um, site, and they can uh, subscribe and they can watch you and and watch all the other speakers from there. I I know we're almost out of time, but I'm, you're just so fascinating. Um, <laughs> I wonder um, what's what's next for you. What do you see? You mentioned that you've moved and you're maybe going to do some traveling. Are you still writing? I am still writing. I don't know how to live and not write. I mm. think I'm just always going to be writing. But um, I'm not working on a formal book right now. Um, I've written a lot that could be a book, but it's in a very different thread. Um, it's in a very... In my mind, it's related to religion, but on paper, it probably isn't. It's probably related more to social justice culture, Mm -hmm. which um, a lot of people have argued has become, if not a faith-based religion, as dogmatic Mm -hmm. as many fundamentalist religions. And I... Um, that's, I observe, sorry, my, my cat wants to say hi. (laughs) Okay. Um, so it's his dinner time. He's telling me, uh, but yeah, I've, I've been doing a lot of writing. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with these pieces yet. Some of them I've published as blog posts or articles. A lot of them I'm saving for maybe, I don't know if I'll ever share them. I have a feeling I will one day, but I'm not sure when or in what format it could be an anthology of essays. Um, I could be a book. I have enough. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm an overwriter, but yeah, I have, um, I always have a lot of thoughts and opinions and I'm always learning. So even though I sound like a, I know I sound like a hyper opinionated person and I am, but I feel like a lot of times it comes off more closed minded than I mean for it to my passion and my conviction about any com- opinion I have is usually born out of literal years of research yes and my mind is totally open to being changed it's just very rarely can people present me information I haven't already heard before Mm -hmm. and dismissed for one reason or another Mm -hmm. and so I look a lot more rigid than I than I feel inside if that makes sense so um that's you know that's that's to be told at some point um but yeah I'm, I'm just I'm looking forward to traveling and celebrating life again, coming out of a two year, two, two and a half year pandemic. And um, I fell in love in the beginning of the pandemic and my partner and I haven't gotten to travel together yet. So I'm excited to do that. Yeah. I fell in love at the beginning of the pandemic too. And I just married my guy. What? (laughs) Oh, congratulations. 
shit. Thank you. Yes. Oh, and I'm so, so happy to hear we, that. We moved him from the United States to Canada. So now we're in the process oh, wow. of uh, all that paperwork. But yeah, yeah the pandemic oh, wasn't all bad. It him. wasn't all bad. <laughs> no, it wasn't. I, I it wasn't all bad for me either. Um, no, like that's that's awesome. Um, I eventually the long term goal is to possibly move to Portugal because that's one of the easier countries for Americans to to migrate to and attain secondary citizenship oh. because we all know where this country's at and yes. I love here's the thing though and I'll say it without shame I fucking love my country I love the United States of America I love it for the experiment that it that it was yeah. I love it I it's not it's so far from perfect the way every other country is so far from perfect I I don't know when it all of a sudden became cool to target America and hate America for like, mm-hmm. like it's the only one that has capitalism and thing. Right, but right. anyway, mm-hmm. and that's committed slavery and genocide. Like right. every country has slavery yeah. and genocide. Show me one that doesn't. I'm open that, like, again, yeah. open, send it my way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I don't necessarily feel comfortable or safe always yeah. in this country. Uh, yeah. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure. And I have it easy. I'm one of the, the, the so-called privileged ones. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm looking into other options. I just want. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, Canada's yeah, always an option. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Um, it's so cold up there, though. I'm such a sunshine desert baby. <laughs> yes. Well, our summers, our summers in British Columbia get very hot, and our winters can be fairly mild. So you might want to consider the Okanagan Valley. I I can't keep you any longer. Your cat needs you. It's it been such a delight catching up with you. Please keep me posted on your um, adventures. This has just been Thanks. great. I, <laughs> I want to thank everyone for tuning into the Divorcing uh, Religion podcast again. And if you'd like to support me on Patreon, hey, I think that would just be terrific. And be sure to subscribe to the Conference on Religious Trauma YouTube channel. And everyone take care. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye, my friend. Goodbye, Janice. Thank you so much for having me.